Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm William Hosea, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 17th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. I am naming this edition of Bring It On, On Point with William Hosea. So stay with me tonight because we have a number of legal topics and issues of late related to former President Donald Trump and his supporters. Some of these involve his continued attempts to return to power by campaigning on the big lie. Also, a laundry list of current discussion topics related to the big lie might read as follows. His continuing baseless legal challenges and conspiracy challenges, which can lead to the erosion and protection and preservation of our democracy and national security. Mounting evidence against Trump and the attempted coup prior to the election and the ongoing battle between Trump and DOJ concerning classified documents. That list can go on and on, but fortunately to help us navigate through this minefield, we've invited back our esteemed guest, IU constitutional professor, let me correct myself, retired IU constitutional professor, Joseph Hoffman. Professor Hoffman, welcome to Bring It On. Glad to be here. So let me start off by asking you to explain the the process, how the process works that led to Judge Cannon's court. And after that, what do you make of her decision to approve Trump's request for a special master uh, over these classified documents? Right, so the fight over the documents Um, as you know, is just one of many legal actions involving Mr. Trump, uh, former President Trump, um, as well as the Trump organization that he headed before he became president. Um, In some ways, it's kind of the tail on the dog because it's the last of the many legal actions that are underway. It's the one that sort of originated most recently when the government became aware that there were classified and other official documents that um, ex-President Trump had taken with him from Washington to Mar-a-Lago. Um, and so this is this has been kind of like, you know, pi- it, it, it's the last of a series of legal actions that involve Mr. Trump or his organization. That um, legal action um, involving the documents is basically a situation in which um, various brand- agencies within the U.S. government, most notably the National Archives, and the U.S. Department of Justice have um, brought this action. Uh, have action is not the right word. They they took action to um, seize documents that um, that um, they believed to be um, wrongfully and illegally seized um, and and taken by Mr. Trump. So the way it works is there's a um, 
there are actually two uh, statutes potentially involved here. These statutes um, uh, date largely from the um, period after uh, President Nixon, um, you know, after his presidency ended in scandal. Um, a, a statute was enacted by Congress called the Presidential Records Act. And that statute basically says that um, presidential records belong to the people, not to the president personally, but to the people of America, to the United States. And um, as a result, at the end of a presidency, all presidential records are supposed to end up in the hands of the National Archives, which then preserves those records for public use, for research, for any other purpose. And it's all laid out in the statute. It's all pretty clear. Um, the statute doesn't apply to personal documents. Um, you know, president writes a letter to some friend or something like that. It's not covered. It's not a presidential record. But all presidential records belong to the people, not to the individual who happens to hold the office of president. And uh, what happened here is that, you know, the National Archives became aware that there were boxes of documents that were, I think, unquestionably presidential records, some of them highly classified documents, you know, not personal diaries or personal letters, but, but official government documents that um, were being held by President Trump in boxes, um, not even secure boxes, just like cardboard boxes lying around, like when you move, right? And you have like 14 boxes in a, in a spare bedroom somewhere. And, uh, you know, President Trump had all these boxes of documents in his um, Florida home at Mar-a-Lago. So the National Archives went to the Justice Department and the Justice Department then went and got permission from a judge to go to Mar-a-Lago in this infamous, you know, highly publicized, televised event where these, you know, these these uh, Justice Department vehicles pull up to Mar-a-Lago and they go and they and they, um, they they take the documents, which, of course, this is this was after about a year or so of negotiations with him, though, first. right? There had been a long process by which the archives had been requesting um, official documents to be transferred by President Trump and uh, his subordinates um, to the archives as pursuant to the Presidential Records Act. And, and indeed, Trump lawyers, lawyers representing President Trump had stated under oath that the documents had been, you know, the, the requested documents had been transferred. There was no, no, there were no other classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Well, that turned out to all be false. Um, there were in fact um, many classified documents and many other documents that while not classified were, were clearly government documents. There is, I should mention, there is another statute that is, I believe it's called the Agency Records Act, that says that documents generated by federal agencies are also public documents and go to the archives. Um, and those documents are not even subject to the Presidential Records Act. So like if some agency of the government interacts with a president and their documents that, that go back and forth, those documents are called agency records and um, they're not even in question. I mean, those automatically by law are considered public documents. But, but what's happened now is that President Trump and um, 
some of his current lawyers are trying to argue that many of the, well, they're arguing two things actually. One, that many of the documents that the Justice Department came and took, um, FBI agents came and picked them up, that many of these documents uh, are not public records, they're personal documents of Mr. Trump. The problem with that is that there's actually a, a court precedent from the Clinton years uh, when there was a dispute over some documents, some, some, they were actually tapes. Uh, President Clinton, before he left office, um, sat and made a bunch of interviews, kind of like we're doing right now. Um, you know, he made a bunch of interviews with someone who was going to write a book about the Clinton presidency. And um, the question arose later, were the tapes of those conversations between President Clinton and an interviewer, were those presidential records? And um, there was a dispute over that. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, a judge in Washington, D.C. made a decision that's still kind of like the lead precedent on, on how to read this particular statute. And that decision basically said, while a president is in office, the president gets to say whether a particular record that's not an agency record, which are automatically public, but the president gets to say whether any other records are presidential records or personal records. But that has to be done while the president is president. And in this case, there's no evidence at all, and President Trump's people aren't even suggesting that President Trump sat down and marked all of these documents as personal records while he was still president. Nobody claims that. That's ridiculous. He didn't do that. We're talking about 11,000 pages of documents. He didn't mark them as personal records while he was president. He's now arguing that he says they're personal. And, you know, but the problem is the precedent says you have to do that while you're still president. You can't, you know, you can't say that after the fact when you get caught holding the bag, right? Um, and so that's a that's a bogus argument. Um, he'll he'll ultimately lose on that. Um, well, the, let me jump in there with another question, real quick. Um, okay. So there have been some reports of him retroactively classifying uh, documents, and are any of the lawyers trying to make that point in court? And what what the lawyers have said? They're being very cagey. Lawyers need to be careful because if they lie in court, they can lose their law license. So what the Trump lawyers have been saying is, well, you know, uh, the FBI shouldn't have come and took those documents. For all we know, President Trump might be able to still declare them classified or possibly he can declare them personal. They're not saying he can because they know that would get them in trouble later. Mm -hmm. Um, but they're they're raising it as one of those kind of Tucker Carlson questions. You know, I'm just asking a question. I'm just asking, could he still do that? I don't know. It's it's worth asking. That's kind of how they're playing it. Um, I, I don't think there's really much chance that they'll win on that. The interesting thing is that the judge who's presiding over the legal dispute, Judge Cannon, a Trump appointed judge, um, she hasn't even said anything in her rulings to date about those issues. It's pretty clear that she understands that those are bogus arguments. If he didn't, if he didn't declassify them while he was president, 
or for purposes of the Presidential Records Act, if he did not declare them to be personal records before he left office, it's pretty clear he can't do that now retroactively. And she hasn't even said anything about that. What she has basically weighed in on is a related question or a distinct question. The second, the second argument that the Trump lawyers are making is that some of these documents might be privileged. And by that, you know, there are a number of legal rules that we call privileges that entitle people to not reveal information, right? Something you tell to your wife, you know, you have a, a what's called a marital privilege to prevent that person from revealing it to somebody else because it's a confidence between husband and wife. In this case, the Trump lawyers have at least a possible plausible argument that some of these documents might involve matters involving Trump talking to his own lawyers, which would be the attorney-client privilege. Others, perhaps uh, more significantly, might be covered by the executive privilege that presidents have to uh, keep things secret that relate to the carrying out of the duties of the president. And um, those are two claims of privilege that might apply in this case uh, to some of the documents. And um, what the judge has said is, you know, under, understand, under normal circumstances, what would happen is um, the evidence would be seized by the government, and then uh, the government would look it over, and the government would say, here, it would give back the things that are privileged. It would say, here, here, we're, we're, not, we're not supposed to have these things, so we're going to give these things back to you, and we're only going to use the ones that, that are not privileged. And then there could be a legal fight about that about whether they did that properly. In this case, what the judge did that was remarkable, I mean, really remarkable and, and unprecedented, was to say, we're not going to let the government even have the first chance to look at these documents. I'm going to stop everything immediately, and I'm going to appoint a special master, an independent third party, who will have to review the entire 11,000 pages of documents in order to sift through them page by page and then give the ones to the government that they're allowed to have and return the ones to, to Trump that he's allowed to have. That is really unprecedented. And the judge sort of admitted that and said, yes, but I'm going to do it because he's an ex-president. You know, she didn't say and because I love him for appointing yeah. me, but but you know, basically because he's an ex-president, I'm going to bend the rules here and say the government can't even look at the documents until some third party has reviewed them. Now, of course, all of that in the end is gonna matter very little in terms of the outcome because the documents that are privileged are privileged and they're gonna end up back with Mr. Trump. And the documents that aren't privileged are not privileged and they're gonna end up with the government. But the problem is that, and this is sort of typical Trump legal strategy, this whole process is going to take months. The judge said that the special master should try to review the documents by November 30th. Notice, by the way, that gets it past the fall elections, the, the yeah. midterm elections. Um, and who knows how much longer than that it will take, because there'll probably be appeals from his decision. So 
you know, it's the typical sort of strategy of delay, 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 throw up as many roadblocks as you can in hopes that you can put this off long enough that people will forget. That's basically what's happening over the privilege issue. So but on, we on the, a, yeah. We have a Trump appointed judge who's seemingly giving him exactly what he needs to delay, delay, delay. Correct. Um, she made what was an unprecedented decision to stop the uh, government investigation in its tracks and appoint a special master and give the special master yeah, two, two, three months to work through these documents, these 11,000 documents. Oh, and by the way, Mr. Trump is supposed to pay for all of that for the costs of the special master because he's the one who went to court to his judge and requested it. We'll see how you know, successful the special master is at collecting on that bill. Well, the Republican Party will end up paying for it, just like they do everything else. You know, in well, we'll, we'll, we'll see. You know, there's, a, there's yeah. again, there's a long history of, um, of President Trump you know, declining, shall we say, to, to pay his legal bills. So we'll, we'll find out. We'll find out about that. But that's what's happening in the documents case is that it's okay. basically currently it's held up. Now, I should point out uh, about three days ago, Friday, the um, sorry, I don't know what date this is airing on September 16th, um, the Friday, September 16th, the Justice Department did appeal a small portion of the judge's decision not the entirety of it. The government basically said, well, we'll go along with the special master. You know, it's somebody we kind of trust. So we'll, we'll, we'll assume that in, in the end, we'll get most of the documents we want. But the government said, we're going to appeal the part that says we have to stop using the classified documents to verify that our national security interests have not been harmed by all of this. You know, part of the judge's order said the government really can't do much of it. She, she she didn't say they had to stop the national security investigation, but what she said is they have to stop the criminal investigation while the special master does his thing. And the government says, well, wait a minute, those two things are so closely related that in order to stop the criminal investigation, it means we can't even look to see whether our national security interests are, have been harmed, which means our national security is, is compromised while we're waiting for the special master to get his work done. And that part of the decision, the government has appealed to the 11th Circuit. So we will see there could be a, an order any day that would at least allow the government to work with some of these documents while the special master does the privilege review, as they call it. So the 11th Circuit Court could address that appeal in a matter of days? That is correct. And then, of course, that could in turn go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah. But that is only on a small portion. That's on whether the government can keep doing some of its work while the special master churns away on the 11,000 documents. So that's been pretty much put on hold for the time being. You know, the, the ultimate question in all of this, and, and, and of course I realize he's a former president which carries some weight in, in this whole mess, but uh, considering everything that this guy has done and is doing, he's still walking around free to continue his movement to, to 
basically overturn the government, undermine democracy. And it seems that the longer that it takes to, to address that issue, the more this cancer will spread. And you know, you have to wonder if it'll, if we'll get to a point where we cannot stop it. Well, let, let's pull back like to a real big picture view of this, right? Yeah. So um, by the way, I should say, I wanna give full credit. Uh, the New York Times, uh, I believe just today, uh, the day of our interview, Monday, the 19th of September, uh, ran a really nice uh, column um, basically describing all of the legal actions involving Mr. Trump that are currently pending. Um, and, and I want to give full credit. That's a, it's a really good resource for anybody who wants to read the details. Um, it's also behind a paywall. So, <laughs> so, you know, I'll talk about it for your listeners so that they don't have to try to fight their way through the paywall. Um, you know, there are all these different legal actions. There's the New York attorney general's civil fraud case against the Trump organization. That's number one. There's the, um, the uh, Manhattan DA's criminal fraud investigation also involving the Trump organization. That's, num that's a criminal case up in New York uh, state court. That's number two. There's the, um, there's the um, action in Georgia. This is probably, we, we should talk about this uh, more in a few moments, but there, the action in Georgia by the um, attorney there, the, the, the attorney general there uh, is um, potentially um, the most significant, I'm sorry, I said attorney general, I mean the Fulton County district attorney. Uh, this is Ms. Willis. Um, <clears throat> uh, district attorney Willis, uh, her criminal investigation into the uh, effort to overturn the Georgia vote um, the infamous phone call, you know, find me 11,780 votes, that whole thing. Um, there's that. So that's an election fraud case. That's a third legal action. Uh, there is, of course, the um, January 6th investigation. This is Merrick Garland. This is, the, you know, the, the, the U.S. Attorney General's investigation about the insurrection on January 6th, which so far hasn't led to any indictments, but just a week ago, 40 more subpoenas issued to people throughout the Trump uh, orbit um, investigating that situation. Um, and then we've already talked about the document case. And then, of course, on top of all of that, there's the there's the um, congressional investigation, which continues. It's not over yet. The House of Representatives investigation, Liz Cheney and, and the committee there. That, that committee doesn't have the power to indict, but they do have the power to make a reference uh, to refer the case for criminal action to the Justice Department. So that's at least six legal uh, sort of you know, situations that could come down around um, ex-president Trump. But let's let's step back from all of that and just look at it from the sort of, you know, from above the trees, so to speak. Um, what is the what is really the goal here? I think that's what people involved in each of these situations have to be asking themselves. What is the goal here? Um, if the goal is, and I, and I say if, I don't know, I have no personal insight into what any of these different district attorneys or attorneys general might be thinking. But if the goal is 
primarily to keep Mr. Trump from becoming president again, then this has to be handled in a very, very smart and careful way. So just to give you an example, the Presidential Records Act, the one we were just talking about, let's assume that for sake of argument that the Justice Department decides that they've got clear evidence that Mr. Trump committed what they consider to be a criminal violation in connection with the Presidential Records Act. In past cases, that has been um, a, a kind of charge that has led only to a misdemeanor um, only to, you know, maybe a fine, maybe, you know, maybe some kind of probation. It's not considered a felony. It's not considered a major crime. There is in the, in the provision, yeah, there is a provision in the act that says that, um, or in a related act that says someone who violates this can be prevented from holding office again. But that provision, arguably, under some existing Supreme Court precedent, that provision is arguably not enforceable, not constitutional. Why? Because the Constitution sets forth what are the qualifications to run for president of the United States. And Congress cannot add additional qualifications to that without amending the Constitution. And there's nothing in the Constitution that says you can't become president if you violated the Presidential Records Act. So it, it seems pretty likely that a court would say that exceeds Congress's power. You can't make that a punishment under the Presidential Records Act that someone can't be president again, because the Constitution is what says, you know, what, what, the, what the requirements are to run for president. And, and so my, my, my point, it's not the technicalities here to worry about. The point is to say, under the Presidential Records Act, it's not clear that a, even a criminal prosecution would prevent Mr. Trump from running for president again. What it might do is stir up his followers, his true believers, give them, you know, whip up the base in such a way that would make it more likely that he would become president again without actually legally preventing it from happening. This is the kind of calculus at the sort of tree level, right? Not that, you know, at, at the forest level, sorry. If you're, if you're standing above the forest, looking down at all the individual trees, you got to ask yourself, am I going to get what I want by pursuing this? What is my goal? And is this, is this going to actually achieve it? Now, I mentioned um, the, the, the congressional investigation. It is very clear to me watching the TV, you know, the hearings and so forth, that that committee, at least for the moment, has decided or has, has kind of committed itself to making the political case against Mr. Trump. All of those hearings, all of that evidence, all of those videos and, and audio testimony from Trump people was all designed to send a message to Americans, not to courts, not to prosecutors or juries, but to American voters, that this guy is dangerous and we can't let this happen again. That's a decision I think that committee for the moment has made. On the other hand, the one legal case that could get very tricky for Mr. Trump really is the Georgia case. 
The New York cases are all about things that happened before he was president. Probably can't really bring him down as a political candidate or as a potential uh, you know, president. Um, they're about the Trump organization and all of their business dealings. But the Georgia case has a, it's first of all, it's a very serious case. You can go to prison. That's a felony. There's, there's a suggestion in Georgia that they're going to try to use the Georgia racketeering statute against Mr. Trump, not just charging him with election fraud, but charging him with conspiring and organizing to do so. That would carry multi-year prison terms if that case were to go forward and, and, and reach, uh, re- reach a, a conclusion of, of guilt. So uh, all I'm trying to say is that on some level, you kind of almost have to step back from the technicalities of each of these different legal actions and ask yourself, is pursuing this going to get where we want to go? Is it going to achieve the, the ultimate goal that we're seeking? And if the ultimate goal is to keep him out of the Oval Office again, then uh, potentially the political move that the committee in Washington, you know, the, the Cheney committee is pursuing, combined with the potential of an actual felony charge with serious prison time, which is what could come out of the Georgia case, those seem to be the two most dangerous for Mr. Trump's uh, political future. Does that make sense? I, I mean, does that make sense? That's kind of the way I'm looking at the whole thing. Absolutely, and it brings to mind another question, of course. But uh, right now, um, I want to say for our listening audience, we're speaking with retired Indiana University constitutional law professor Joseph Hoffman. Um, so you said that uh, there's nothing in the uh, Presidential Records Act uh, that would prevent him from holding office again? Well, well, there is, but I don't think it would be upheld if it were challenged. Okay. okay. Because, because the Supreme Court, in a different context, but nevertheless a pretty closely related one, has held that Congress cannot add qualifications to the ones that are set forth in the Constitution for these highest level federal offices. The Constitution is the only source of the, re- of the legal requirements to be a president or to be a senator or to be a member of the House of Representatives. You know, you said something that was very interesting. Uh, on the one hand, it is, is the goal to prevent him from holding political office again or is the goal to pursue criminal charges? Right, to hold him account to hold him accountable. In other words, yes, that's right. Okay, so the the January sixth committee has one goal in mind, and, and you stated that um, the DOJ has another goal in mind. So, can you offer any kind of uh, thoughts on why there was pushback, or is that the reason why there was pushback? Uh, when the Justice Department asked the one six committee to share their their findings, I think that the one six committee, again, at the moment, for the moment, and throughout the televised hearings, that was to me clearly meant to to communicate to the American people. Right. Primetime television, all the audio and video bells and whistles, that was meant to 
to try to communicate as clearly as possible by a, you know, bipartisan, you know, that Republicans can quibble, but, you know, there were Republicans as well as Democrats on that committee, by a bipartisan committee to communicate to the American people that this man is dangerous and should never be allowed near the Oval Office again. That was the audience for all of that. Now, the 1-6 the committee could also get involved in a more direct pursuit of criminal charges. They can refer the case to the Justice Department and recommend that criminal indictments be filed. That would be then up to the Justice Department, um, but the House committee can push for that. I don't think the House committee presently thinks that that would help their case to keep him from, from regaining office. I think that their focus is what can we do to best ensure that this guy never again gets near the levers of power? What can we do to prevent that? And I think at the moment, their judgment is that the best way they can do that is by continuing to press the message to the American people. If they get to the point where they think, you know, that's not working or we need to, you know, we need to go further. If they think that referring the case for criminal action to the Justice Department and trying to get some kind of, of criminal indictment um, brought against him, if they think that's the better strategy, I have no doubt that they would pivot in that direction. But at the moment, I think they think that I'm just basing this on what I see. Again, I have no inside information, just based on what I see in those hearings and in the statements made by uh, Representative Cheney and others. I think their judgment is we're going to fight the political fight against him and communicate to the American people how dangerous he is in the hope that some combination of the American people or his own party will turn against him and um, keep him away from um, be being a candidate in 2024. I think that was their judgment. Whether they might change their mind about that is anybody's guess. I think that Merrick Garland, as the, the head of the Justice Department, who's got to decide, you know, he's got his own investigation going. He's the one that just got the 40 subpoenas issued. They've, they've you know, taken testimony sorry, taking testimony from a number of, of, of um, Trump people already. I think they, uh, you know, Merrick Garland is both, um, you know, an absolutely honorable person and also an absolutely careful person. That's what we know about him. That's what we know about his personality. And I think he is keeping his cards close to the vest I do not think that Merrick Garland has made the decision yet that uh, the best way to keep Trump out of the White House again is to charge him with a crime. If Merrick Garland thought that was the best way to do it, he would be um, taking steps more aggressively than we're seeing so far. That's what I think is happening. You know, so far, uh, Steve Bannon has probably been uh, the most... Um, the the face of anyone who who's going to resist a subpoena, but and he did, and he's going to be sentenced soon for that. Yes, with 
is it fair to say that one way to gauge the impact of the one six committee's uh, progress and how successful they are is by how many more of these people will will comply with these that last batch of 40 subpoenas that went out? Well, the 40 subpoenas were actually from the Justice Department, not right. from the one not from the one six committee. So, you know, right. you've got the you've got the Justice Department's one six investigation and you've got the, the House Committee's one six investigation. Those came from the Justice Department. So they're part of a potential criminal action already. That's the reason the Justice Department is sending out those subpoenas. Um, I think that in any prosecutorial situation, I think any prosecutor would tell you that part of what you do in a complex criminal investigation is you begin by pursuing um, what you might call lesser fish, you know, smaller fish, in the hopes that you can get them to turn on and reveal damaging information about the bigger fish. Um, and part of what's happening, I'm sure, with these 40 subpoenas is an effort to see if they can turn some of President Trump's previous, previously loyal supporters into witnesses against him. Um, you know, a, a certain amount of that already happened in New York in the in the fraud case, right? The the um, the fraud civil case being brought by the New York Attorney General against the Trump Organization, which is about to go to trial. That case is going to trial, the civil case um, for fraud. Um, you know, Trump's longtime accountant um, has agreed to testify at the criminal trial against the organization. Now, he has not agreed to testify beyond that against Trump or other individuals, but he has agreed that he will testify. He pled guilty, he took his punishment, and he agreed to testify against the Trump organization. Has he, has he done his jail time already? No, no, no. It's just, it, 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 he, he, it's, a, it's a civil case, so there's no actual... Okay. Okay. Uh, sorry, I should, shouldn't have said pled guilty. He's he has admitted uh, fraud, and um, but that's only a civil lawsuit. Um, the New York, uh, the, the Manhattan DA is investigating in a criminal way that same cluster of tax fraud and so forth. So it may it may turn out to be criminal eventually. Um, but but my point is that you know. Just like that, I think when you when you issue 40 subpoenas uh, to people throughout the Trump orbit, um, what you're trying to do is find out who who will turn and tell you the truth and um, who won't, you know, and, um, you know, Steve Bannon uh, resisted and got got punished for that uh, at the congressional side. But on the on the Justice Department side, I think that um, this will be an effort to try to turn some of those people against Trump. Now, again, where does that lead? In every one of these cases, every single one of them, the people who are basically in charge of these investigations have to be thinking about the big picture. They have to be thinking about, am I going to make things better or am I going to make things worse by pursuing this? You know, Trump famously the other day said that there was going to be big trouble in America if he gets indicted. Well, um, that's what people like um, Merrick Garland, people like the Atlanta DA, people like the, uh, you know, the Manhattan DA. These are the things they have to take into consideration. Not that they're afraid of Trump, but what they are perhaps afraid of is Trump becoming president again.
And they have to think carefully about what strategy, what legal strategy will get them closer to their ultimate goal. Now, I agree with you. In the case of Merrick Garland, it may very well be that at the end of the day, he's going to say, I'm just going to pursue justice and let the political chips fall where they may. That would be consistent with what we know of him as a human being. That, that, he said as much, too. Yeah, exactly. And so at the end of the day, he may simply be in a position where he knows if he's going to make a case stick against a former president, he's going to need the strongest possible case to make it stick. That's probably why he's being cautious at this point. And it probably doesn't say much about what he thinks about the ultimate goal. But I do think I know what Liz Cheney thinks the ultimate goal is. I don't think Liz Cheney cares whether Donald Trump spends one day in jail or pays a criminal fine or not. I think what she cares about is keeping him out of the Oval Office. And so every decision that she makes will be with that goal in mind, which makes sense because after all, she is she's not a prosecutor. She's part of the political system. So Trump and Lindsey Graham both uh, kind of intimated what would happen if Trump were indicted and or convicted. But are there any special legal liabilities for signaling for civil unrest by a former president or former or sitting members of Congress? Because Lindsey Graham uh, kind of jumped on that train also. Well, let me put it this way. If, if what happened on January 6th doesn't count as inciting or insurrection, then what's happening now probably doesn't count either, right? I, I agree with you that that's a statement that sounds like you're hint, hint, wink, wink, telling your supporters to riot. But, you know, we got even more than that on January right. 6th. So, so, so let's, let, let, you know, let's solve that puzzle first, and, and then we'll know what the answer is. Yeah. So Clarence uh, uh, gave me a couple of questions and we haven't gotten to them yet, but I'm gonna sneak one in there now. All right. Can a former or sitting president be indicted? If not, then why do we impeach them? And I know the Senate has to prosecute after the House impeaches a president. That's correct. So we have a process called impeachment that is in the constitution for dealing with misconduct by a president. That much is clear, and we know what the rules are. And that's a very political process. It was intended to be. It's not a legal process. I think we talked right. about this we a did. long time ago. Uh, that's, a, that's a very openly political process. Um, as to criminal charges, so the Justice Department, both during the Nixon years and then again in the year 2000, issued... Uh, policy statements. This was an official policy issued by the Justice Department as the chief prosecutor in the United States government, issued policy statements saying that in their opinion, a, a sitting president cannot be indicted, cannot be indicted for past or present crimes while they are sitting. And the reason for that is the Justice Department took the position and it is still the position. I, I don't mean to suggest it's, it's been revoked or revised. This is the official position of the US Justice Department is that you can't have prosecutors charging sitting presidents because allowing that would make it too easy for a single prosecutor 
to basically undermine the functioning of the United States government. Think about, I'm not saying that's what we have now, but think about a rogue prosecutor filing criminal charges against the president, forcing them to go to court, forcing them to testify or do anything. The, the Justice Department was like, no, while they're president, their job of being president trumps, no pun intended, trumps everything else. And you can't charge them with a crime during the time they are in office. That is the current position of the Justice Department. However, it has been very clear since the Nixon administration, and by the way, most of the key precedents here come from the Nixon years. So yeah. that, that tells you something, right? Um, all, all the precedent um, is that uh, a president can be indicted once they are no longer in office, even for crimes committed while they were in office. That is absolutely clear. However, if that is simply a position of the Justice Department, does a new DOJ or can a new DOJ come in and change that position and indict a sitting president? And Answer, yes, they could, because it's not law. They could go through the process of issuing a new you know, so, so, you know, at one time, uh, changing the subject now briefly, but just as an example, during the Obama administration, the Justice Department had an official policy statement that they would not generally prosecute people who violated federal marijuana laws, because, you know, marijuana is still illegal under federal law. It's a major crime, um, even though it's legal in some states. It's illegal. It's a crime under federal law. And the Justice Department during the Obama years, issued a policy statement saying, no, we won't generally prosecute in states where it's legal, even though we could. And then, um, you know, Jeff Sessions became attorney general under President Trump, and he issued, he revoked that and issued his own policy statement saying, yep, you better watch out because we still can prosecute. So yes, a, a, new, a new head of the DOJ, a new attorney general could revoke that directive and say, but 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 remember, this is a directive that was based on careful analysis of constitutional law, separation of powers, and so forth. But yes, it's not law. It's not even a statute. It could be changed. I think it is highly unlikely at the at the 98% level that um, the Justice Department under any attorney general would revoke that because I think basically the analysis was correct. They were thinking about Nixon, who was, you know, until now at least, the most evil president we'd had. And, and yet they were saying, come on, the presidency, you know, the president has to be able to be president during the time they're in office. And we do have processes to get them out of office. We have the impeachment. We have the the amendment that allows was 29th amendment or whatever it is that a 28th amendment that allows the uh, cabinet and vice president to get them out of office quickly. We have these things, but basically criminal indictment is not the way you take out a president while they're in office. I think they were probably right about that, but it's a, it's a moot point anyway, because Trump isn't in office. So we don't really have to worry about that anymore. All we have to worry about is a former president being charged with crimes committed while they were in office. And that everyone agrees is, is perfectly okay. You know, using the, the logic that you just communicated, um, aren't there consequences to that type of DOJ position? You said uh, a rogue prosecutor could kind of disrupt uh, presidential duties. 
But if he's protected, then you have a rogue president like Donald Trump who got away with murder almost while he was in office because he could. And the impeachment and the, uh, uh, the 25th Amendment, how well did that work out for us? Yeah, um, not very well. But again, um, the Constitution, and this is kind of getting back to the point about qualifications for office, the Constitution treats the president as someone who is largely controlled politically rather than legally while they are in office. They're controlled politically. They're controlled by impeachment. They're controlled by the 25th Amendment. Um, that's how you control a president during the four years they're in office. And of course, you hope that the people don't get suckered, but it happens. Um, but that's how you control a president. And, and the Constitution similarly dictates what the terms are. You know, if, if, a, if a convicted criminal wants to run for president of the United States, the, the Constitution doesn't prohibit that. And, you know, that, that becomes a political question then. That becomes something for the people of America. Do you really want somebody like that as your president? That These are political matters, and the Constitution more or less makes them political matters. Now, once you're out of office, the political stuff ends, and then the Constitution doesn't protect you anymore from the legal stuff. Now all that legal stuff comes back. So Trump is now facing legal actions for things that he did before he became president, for things that he did while he was president, and for things that he's done since he was president in the case of the documents at Mar-a-Lago. All three of those are now the subject of legal actions, which is perfectly appropriate since he no longer performs that constitutional role anymore. Exactly. Now, that and, that and that, I should point out, is precisely why it's a, just another reason why Judge Cannon's ruling was um, rather strange to, to, to make such a big deal out of the fact that he's a former yeah. president. You know, when he's a for, when he becomes on the day he becomes a former president. He's no different from any of the rest of us when it comes to legal proceedings. You know, okay. However, that's the way it's supposed to be. But back in Feb what June of 2017, we had a contractor who was arrested for, for leaking a single classified document and went to jail for a few years. Donald Trump uh, has been treated with... Uh, uh, kid gloves, you know. Well, and again, while he was president, that was surely more or less dictated by the Justice Department's policy that you don't go after a president while he's in, sitting in office. But once he's done, and, and by the way, I, I don't want anyone to think that what I'm saying is that the president is completely above the law while they're in office. That's also not true, right? That was the, the most famous uh, separation of powers, executive privilege case in American history, once again involving Richard Nixon, um, was the case of U.S. versus Nixon when you know when Watergate was all being revealed and some of the people involved in the actual break-in were being investigated and charged with crimes by the special prosecutor. Um, the special prosecutor subpoenaed Richard Nixon, sitting president, while in office and said, give us the tapes of your conversations with all these bozos. And Nixon refused on grounds of executive privilege and the US Supreme Court unanimously, unanimously in three weeks after the case was heard, ruled that 
he was not entitled to claim executive privilege under those circumstances and that not even a president is above the law. But that was about someone else's crime, right? The investigation there was about the burglars and about the evidence that Nixon had that was necessary to prosecute those burglars. Okay. Of course, of course, the same evidence was also going to show that Nixon was a crook, but Nixon was blocking the evidence from being used against other people. And the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously, with one uh, abstention, said that um, a president cannot refuse to turn over evidence in that situation. So even a sitting president has certain legal obligations that they must comply with, no question. But when it comes to charging a president, the Justice Department says, yeah, we don't think that's appropriate because it might, I mean, we might need the president to like you know, call out the nukes or, you know, do something important. And we can't have them hassling with, with legal actions while they're sitting, but now he's out of office. So none of that matters. I mean, he's, he's fair game for any, any case that is still within the statute of limitations. He's fair game. Well, since we're talking about the Supreme court, uh, I want to circle back to the last time we spoke to you, which was, uh, I think February of 21. Sounds and, about right. Yeah. So back then, you felt that it would not be a wise decision for Democrats to expand the, the Supreme Court. Given some of their recent rulings, do you still feel that way? I'm appalled by many of the recent rulings and by many of the actions and, and, and opinions written by recently appointed justices who seem to have openly deceived um, Congress and the American people about their their um, plans and their opinions. Uh, I'm appalled by all of that. Expanding the Supreme Court does not seem to me to be the best solution because where does it end? All that means is that Republicans have a reason to get their people back in office so they can expand further and appoint more Republicans. I mean, soon we'll have a Supreme Court of 500 justices. <laughs> I think what we ought to be doing is thinking more carefully about how to perhaps limit um, the power of the court to decide certain kinds of cases and certain kinds of issues. It is very clear that that within a certain within certain bounds, Congress has the ability to limit the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. This actually happened in American history right after the Civil War. You know, the Civil War was fought, the good guys won, and you know, by that I mean the national government prevailed over the, the insurrectionist states, and, um, and then we had Reconstruction, an effort to try to basically rebuild the broken and corrupt political systems of the insurrectionist states. And uh, the problem was that, that the Supreme Court, which is like, you know, life tenured, was still composed primarily of Southerners and Southern sympathizers. And um, that presented a real problem for Reconstruction uh, era policies, that the Supreme Court could strike them down or invalidate them or block them. And so Congress passed a number of statutes restricting the court's jurisdiction, saying you, you can't hear certain kinds of cases. They stop at the Court of Appeals. They don't go to the Supreme Court. That could be done again. And that might be a way to neuter some of the worst effects of a similarly sort of backwards looking court. 
would be to say, you can't decide certain issues. They're off the table for you. They stop at the Court of Appeals. How do you feel about term, in the last minute that we have, how do you feel about term limits for the Supreme Court? And I was kind of surprised that John Roberts supported that. I don't think it's a bad idea. The problem is you need a constitutional amendment, which is even harder than getting a statute passed. These wow. days, these days, yeah. probably impossible. Statutes, also probably impossible if they're about something controversial, like stripping the court of some of its jurisdiction. That would be tough to do, but a constitutional amendment is even harder. Well, Professor Hoffman, any uh, parting words for us before we kind of head to the uh, locker room? Just one. At the end of the day, democracy depends on the people, not the president, not the Congress, not the court, not any of the elites. At the end of the day, people have to be willing to fight for democracy. I'm not sure we're yet at the moment where we need to take to the streets, but there might come a time when we will. And people need to think about that and be ready for it. Now, that topic in and of itself is another whole show. Anyway, on that note, we want to thank our esteemed guest, retired IU constitutional law professor Joseph Hoffman, for joining me to discuss the legal topics and issues of late related to former President Donald Trump and his supporters. Bring it on has an open submission policy, so if you have any ideas, we would love to hear what they are. Please send your emails to our volunteer staff. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address is bringiton at wfhb.org. And if you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send that info directly to our staff. Again, the address is bringiton at wfhb.org. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone. Tonight's assistant producer is yours truly. Our consultant and news department director is Cade Young, program engineer Chantal LaFontaine. Original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I am William Hosea. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.